Welcome to Suspending the Rules, Bloomberg Government's weekly look at what's happening in Congress. The 116th Congress is now underway with the House under Democratic control and a Republican majority in the Senate. The partial government shutdown is into its third week, with prospects for a solution less than clear. Welcome to this edition of Suspending the Rules from Bloomberg Government. I'm Adam Taylor. And I'm Adam Shank. Last week, the House passed a six-bill spending package to reopen closed agencies. This week, the House will consider four of those measures individually. Those four are the Agriculture FDA Bill, Financial Services and General Government, Interior and Environment, and the Transportation, Housing, and Urban Development measures. All four of those bills were previously passed by the Senate 92 to 6 in August. The House has also teed up an emergency spending bill to provide disaster relief. Democrats also released a broad election and anti-corruption bill numbered HR1. We'll have more on that measure in a moment. And in the second segment, we'll discuss part of the House's schedule for this week, including Democrats' planned response to a lawsuit challenging the Affordable Care Act, as well as a Senate measure focused on security in the Middle East. First, though, a plug for a couple special episodes we have coming out soon. BGov Transportation Policy Reporter Sean Courtney recently sat down with the new chairman and ranking member of the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, Democrat Peter DeFazio of Oregon and Republican Sam Graves of Missouri, to talk about their priorities in the new Congress. Look for those interviews to come out on this feed in the coming days. In this segment, we'll be looking at the Democrats' first signature piece of legislation, H.R. 1. Joining us now are Bloomberg Government Legislative Analysts Sarah Babbage and Michael Smallberg. Hey, guys. Hello. Immediately after Election Day, House Democrats said their first bill would be an ethics and election package, which they've now titled the For the People Act. Among its key provisions, it would require presidential candidates to release 10 years of tax returns, enhance spending disclosures on ads, and attempt to increase voter participation. Michael, why was this at the top of the Democrats' agenda? So this is an issue that uh, many members of the House freshman class ran on, um, you know, as a response to what they saw as scandals and conflicts in the Trump administration, Russia's attempts to interfere in the 2016 election. Um, but there, are, this is also in many ways a response to longstanding concerns about the influence of money in politics, especially following uh, the Citizens United decision. And so really, um, this bill would, would reshape um, how many federal agencies and many parts of the federal government and the influence industry conduct their business. So what's in the ethics package? So there are really three main themes to this package. One is is about voting registration and voter rights, um, which I think Sarah will, will talk a little bit more about. The, the second theme really deals with reducing the influence uh, of money in politics. So for example, it, it includes provisions that would require groups to disclose their donors who are active in political spending and make it harder for them to hide the ulti- ultimate source of that uh, spending. It would require more disclosure of groups that are behind online political ads, uh, require companies like Facebook and Twitter to keep a, a track of that political advertisement. Um, it would also uh, repeal some appropriations riders that we've seen that had blocked agencies from requiring publicly traded companies and federal contractors from disclosing their political contributions. Is there a, does, is there a, a provision in there as well? Where I know there's been a lot of chatter about nonprofit organizations as well. D- does this bill address that at all? Yeah. So this is one of the big consequences of the Citizens United decision was that it allowed outside groups, including politically active nonprofits, unions, trade associations, 
politicians to really spend unlimited amounts on elections as long as they aren't coordinated with a political campaign. So it would, in many cases, require those groups to disclose more when they are trying to influence uh, elections uh, or political outcomes. Uh, And there are other provisions that would, for example, create a public funding matching system for candidates that receive small donations. Again, this is trying to to sort of limit the effect of of super PACs and other groups that are spending a lot uh, on those elections. And the third major theme is really tightening the government ethics and conflict of interest rules. As you mentioned, it would require the White House, the president to to release tax returns, would bar the president or entities acting uh, on his behalf from contracting with a federal agency. This is a a not so subtle dig at at, uh, Trump, you know, leasing the old post office building for for his D.C. hotel. You know, in Congress, it would bar lawmakers from using taxpayer funds to settle uh, discrimination settlements or to serve on corporate boards. At the Supreme Court, it would create a code of ethics. And throughout the executive branch, it would, you know, try to slow the revolving door between the agencies and the industries they oversee, including by stopping some um, financial rewards that companies like Citigroup have offered to employees who enter public service. Another part of the bill focuses on election security. What What's in that part? This part of the bill um, would provide more grant funding uh, for states to tighten up their election systems, bolster their cybersecurity, and set up standards for contractors that, that work uh, as vendors on election systems. And again, you know, just really try to, to protect a lot of these election systems from uh, future attempts to interfere uh, with the election process. Right. And there's also language in there regarding uh, sort of pushing the use of, or increase user, I guess you could even argue stepping back towards like paper ballots. Yeah, exactly. Some of that funding would, would let states replace some of their old systems with updated paper ballots, which are seen as more secure than electronic paperless voting systems, and would also give them funding to conduct audits after an election to make sure that there wasn't, you know, either attempts to interfere or, or even just sort of errors in, in the voting system. So it would give grants for states to conduct those post-election audits without having to conduct a full recount. Sarah, on the voting front, how would this bill expand voter registration? We could definitely see voter rolls increase in a number of ways. Maybe one of the biggest is allowing people who are convicted of felonies to regain their voting rights after they've served their time in um, jail or prison. This is something that a majority of states do allow right now, but not all states. And it can have a big impact. In Florida, there was recently an amendment passed in the election to allow people who have felonies to vote after they've served their time. And that has expanded voting rights to more than a million people. Beyond that, the bill includes a bunch of different mechanisms to make it easier to register to vote. So people could register to vote online or at a polling place on the day of the election. There's also a process for state agencies to compare their records and try to identify people who are eligible to vote but not currently registered and to automatically register them. So Sarah, how would the bill make it easier for people to vote? Well, one thing that federal employees might be excited to hear is that the bill would make it a federal holiday on election day, so much easier to get to the polls. The measure would also expand requirements for states to hold early voting and allow voting by mail. Election interference has been in the news basically since the 2016 election. What would this bill do on that front? The bill would prohibit people from spreading false information about the election, including timing and people's eligibility to vote. It would also bar people from interfering with someone registering to vote. And it would increase the penalty for voter intimidation. It would also impose penalties for people who conduct those illicit activities, correct? Right. So people who do these things could be jailed 
and they could be subject to fines as well. So what are the next steps for this bill? Does it have any chance of uh, advancing to the Senate? I'm not sure which one of you guys want, wants to take that one. Well, the House Democratic leaders said that they will be taking up this measure probably in the next month or so after this bill goes through uh, markups through several committees. On the Senate side, a Majority Leader Mitch McConnell had already said this bill was dead on arrival before it was even formally introduced. He said it was a, quote, blatantly unconstitutional attempt to have the government micromanage the way we handle elections. And as I said, some of these provisions are really a not so subtle dig at the Trump administration. And so, I, you know, there are a lot of Republicans who, who would oppose this measure. In many ways, this is more of a messaging bill, something that the Democrats are seeing as a way to kind of unite the caucus and lay the groundwork for their agenda in this Congress uh, for both legislation and oversight hearings. And this, of course, could become a, a campaign issue for 2020. Thanks, Michael and Sarah. We'll be right back to look at this week's House schedule and a Senate bill focused on security in the Middle East. Among the 20 or so non-controversial measures the House is scheduled to consider this week under the procedure this podcast is named for, suspension of the rules, are two health care bills. One part of the new House rules package proposed by Democrats last week would allow them to intervene in a lawsuit we discussed on the podcast last month in which a federal judge in Texas declared the entire law unconstitutional. Meanwhile, the Senate has set up debate on a bill to authorize security aid to Israel and Jordan and to impose sanctions on the regime of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. Bloomberg government legislative analysts Danielle Parnas and Noreen Chowdhury join us now to break down the health measures and discuss the Senate's Middle East bill. Danielle, the House is scheduled to take up a bill on pandemic response programs and one on Medicaid programs this week. Tell us about those. So the first one you mentioned um, are programs that help defend against and respond to pandemics and uh, weapons of mass destruction from a health perspective. So it includes authorizations for things like the strategic national stockpile of medical countermeasures, the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, or BARDA, and state health preparedness programs. The uh, Medicaid bill is related to two policies under the program for long-term services for beneficiaries in home and community-based settings. So one is a demonstration grant that helps individuals transition from institutions to their communities, and another disregards a spouse's income when determining eligibility for those services. Right, so that allows people who are married whose spouse has an income that could disqualify them to remain qualified for the program? Correct. And I should also add that in the bill related to pandemics, there are also provisions that would overhaul the FDA regulatory framework for non-prescription drugs, which the FDA has said the current process is lengthy and inefficient. So this measure would set up an administrative order process for those drugs and user fees to support it instead of the regular regulatory process. And so the pandemics and the non-prescription drug bills had initially been separate bills and then were eventually packaged together in the House to try to improve chances of their passage. And we've seen these bills before. I think they they passed both of these in very, like, as you just said, in, in various forms before the end of the year. What's the status of the programs that are covered by the bills? Sure. So the Medicaid provisions essentially expired at the end of the year. They're mostly non-controversial, and we saw them in several different bills, first from the Republican-controlled House at the end of last year. They were in the continuing resolution that ultimately failed, also Democrats' spending package from last week. So, you know, it's been kicking around to try to extend these programs, but it just hasn't 
been able to get pushed across the finish line yet. The pandemics bill, most of the programs there, the statutory authority expired September 30th, but they were actually already provided funding for fiscal 2019. And as I mentioned, they've come up several times, first separately in the House and then packaged together, and they received a lot of bipartisan support there. But they've sort of been held up in the Senate from our colleagues at Bloomberg government have reported some intra-party feuding on the Republican side where there have been holds on the individual bills, but that it seems like there is support from leadership in both chambers to try to move it across the finish line at this point. So that's why uh, we're seeing it come up again now. House Democrats have also come out of the gate with action related to the Affordable Care Act, their signature policy achievement back in 2010. That law is now in peril in court, as we mentioned earlier. What's the latest with that health law and why are Democrats stepping in? So, um, you know, the first day that Democrats took control of the House, they included in their rules package provisions authorizing the House counsel to intervene in this lawsuit to defend the Affordable Care Act. And the lawsuit was brought by Republican states saying that after Congress repealed the penalties associated with the individual mandate, that the law, the entire law is essentially unconstitutional. I think where we have Democrats in the House and also Democratic states, uh, we're seeing them step in now because the administration themselves declined to defend the law. So Democrats, since this was their signature policy achievements, or one of them from President Barack Obama's administration, they're now stepping in to try to maintain the law. Let's turn to the Senate security bill. Noreen, the bill seems mostly focused on boosting Israel. What does it do? So um, the bill focuses on boosting the U.S.-Israel alliance by authorizing military aid to Israel that was agreed to under the Memorandum of Understanding signed by both countries in 2016. So through that memorandum, Israel would receive $3.3 billion in foreign military grant assistance each year through fiscal 2028, or in other words, $33 billion over 10 years. That amount would allow Israel to procure additional U.S. defense articles and services to protect against emerging threats from terrorist groups such as Hezbollah and Hamas. What are some of the defense articles that are being provided under the bill? So the defense articles would include uh, precision-guided weapons and other technical services. The bill also would penalize companies that participate in boycotts of Israel. What's happening there? Right. So the bill would target anti-Israel boycotts, divestments, and sanctions activity, or what's collectively known as uh, BDS. State and local governments would be allowed to adopt and pass measures that divest public funds from limit investments or restrict contracts for goods and services with companies that knowingly engage in BDS activities against Israel or Israeli-controlled territories. So basically, if, if a company agrees with uh, in part of a contract with a foreign company, not to do business with Israel, states could then not do business with that company. Correct, right. Other provisions in the bill would reauthorize expedited defense sales to Jordan and impose sanctions on Syria. Subscribers can read more details and analysis at bgov.com. That's our show. Look for our special episodes with the exclusive interviews with House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee Chairman Peter DeFazio and Ranking Member Sam Graves. We'll be back next week with another regular edition of Suspending the Rules. Talk to you then. Thank you for listening to Suspending the Rules. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. Find out more about the topics we discussed today and a whole lot more from Bloomberg government at about.bgov.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at bgov. The legislative analyst team is Sarah Babbage, Noreen Chowdhury, Danielle Parnas, Michael Smallberg, and me, Adam Taylor. Our editor is Adam Shank. 
Nico Anzalotta is our sound engineer. Our theme music is Home Organ by Zach Nasita. More information can be found at premiumbeat.com. <laughs>